Man, what a, a warm welcome. Thank you, guys. And uh, how are you doing today? Are you doing all right? Are you excited to be here? Good, good. Hey, I'm really glad to be with you in church today. And if I've not met you before, my name is Dylan. I get to serve on staff here as our Connections Pastor. I love this church and I'm really excited today because I get to share the privilege actually of preaching across all of our services with two other really incredible, incredible people. They're uh, good friends of mine, people who my family and I love really deeply and they're gifted communicators. And so Logan Gross preached at the nine o'clock and he did a killer job. And so you need to go back, rewatch that message if you weren't here. And then after this service at the 1230, his wife Madison is gonna preach and bring the house down. And uh, if you've got extra time, you need to stick around and listen because every different service is getting a little bit of a different flavor with a different person today. And so I'm really honored to get to share the stage with them today. Also just honored in recognizing that I get to share from a borrowed platform. And here in our church, we have some really incredible leadership over us and Pastor Josh and Pastor Janae. They are such a gift to us. And I'm so grateful for the way that they've spoken into my life, the way that they've raised me up as a leader. And so can we just appreciate them? Uh, because they're incredible, incredible. And I'm really thankful that they would allow me this opportunity to share with you for a few moments today. And so we're going to jump right into it. We're going to get going with the message. And we're going to start in a passage of scripture from the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, you can stick your thumb in there. It's going to be on the screens. If you don't, no worries. But before we read, I want to give a little bit of context because we're going to meet a man named Moses in this passage. And Moses is born, we see this in the Old Testament, he's born to the Hebrew people who we might know as the Israelites. These are God's people throughout the Old Testament, and when he is born, they are under the oppressive rule and reign of the Egyptians. They're slaves in this land. And not only that, but when Moses is born, there's been this declaration sent out from the Pharaoh, this king over Egypt at the time, because the Hebrew people, they are multiplying. They're being blessed by God, and so much so that he is worried. He's saying, hey, there are way too many of these people. We don't want things to get out of control. Here's what we're going to do. Every time a Hebrew boy is born, he needs to be killed. Take the baby, throw the baby in the river, and that's going to solve our problem, which is like super messed up, obviously. And not only this, but when Moses is born, thankfully there are these incredible Hebrew midwives who are working secretly against this command. They're working, doing everything they can to preserve the lives of these children. And so Moses is spared, he survives, he's not killed. And not only that, but ironically, though the Pharaoh wants him dead, he ends up being raised by Pharaoh's daughter in the royal household, which is quite the switch. So he is born a Hebrew, but functionally raised as an Egyptian in this land. And later on in his life, he's going, he's walking outside, he's observing the Hebrew people who are under this slavery, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And Moses is inspired in the moment. He steps in to defend this person. He actually ends up killing the Egyptian, buries him in a shallow grave, and soon later finds out, hey, uh, I tried to do this as secretly as I could, but people have found out. It's been known what I have done. And so he flees because he's worried that he's gonna face consequences for this, that he's gonna be punished. 
And Moses goes from a place of royalty and steps out, flees into a place of obscurity where he is for years. And this is where we now find him in Exodus 3 when we pick uh, pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I can only imagine that the Lord instructed them, make sure you get termite insurance when you go into this land. because all of the ites are there. He says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. Now here we have a very, very interesting story. Moses is going about his day, doing his business, when suddenly his attention is grabbed by this mysterious burning bush. Have you ever been in the middle of a task when suddenly something completely different grabs your focus? It takes you totally off track. I have never been a shepherd like Moses personally. I've never been responsible for the care of livestock. I know that we're in North Dakota. We've got ranchers in the room. The only thing I have ranched is like a side salad here and there. Uh, And that's really it. But if you were in church even just a couple of weeks ago now, you might have heard Pastor Josh reference that some of our pastoral staff, we took a trip up together, a day trip to the state fair on the weekend, and I hadn't been to the state fair in years. And as it turns out, there is a lot of livestock there. I mean, we watched pig races. I didn't even know people race pigs. We saw horses. We saw cows. They were shearing sheep on the spot, getting them ready to show. And, you know, it was really cool for me, as you can probably tell from the skinny cut of my jeans. It's not really my regular scene or thing that I'm around, but uh, it was really interesting. For me, I was a little bit more uh, excited about the once was livestock and is now deep fried, you know, probably on a stick. or just wrapped around another piece of food just because it can be. And we didn't even make it onto a ride. We spent the whole day eating. It was awesome. But in a break from all of this eating, we were waiting in line to race some go-karts. We found this track there and, you know, as wonderful and lovely and nice and kind as all of our pastors are, we love a little bit of healthy competition, you know? And so naturally, we wanted to find out which pastor was faster on the track. And we, you know, it was a great time. I had a few moments in my mind where I was probably saying, like, get behind me, Satan, you know, like, 
cut on the inside, keep the inside lane, don't let anyone pass you. But before we even get on the track, we're waiting in line for the group in front of us to get done. And all of a sudden, we look over next to us, there is this high dive act that's happening, this really big, like, above-ground pool of water that they've brought in, a couple of diving boards on each side, and then one really high truss raising all the way into the North Dakota sky, you know, swaying in the wind a little bit. And literally several stories above the water, there are these different platforms. And I say platform, but it's like a one-foot-by-one-foot little square block that someone can climb up and stand on. I think the top one was, like, 80 feet. It's like nuts. And, and so we're watching this happen, and by the time we're there, it's already kind of midway through this act, right? Um, so it's not the beginning introductory dives, it's getting intense. And the first thing that I see when I look up is this guy climbing onto one of the higher platforms, and he is wearing a full black sweatsuit, the like balaclava mask over his head. He's got this cape tied around his neck, draped over his back. It's very Midwest meets Marvel, kind of our own state fair superhero. I even found out later he had the superhero physique and the tights, like really small tights in the form of a Speedo. And, and he, so he's playing the part, right? And I'm looking like, what's gonna happen? And all of a sudden you hear the announcer chime in over, over the speakers, right? That's right, folks. He's just completely drenched his cape in lighter fluid. He will now ignite his cape, quickly engulfing his entire body in flames. We call this dive the human torch. I thought, wow, that's creative. I would have called it really poor decision-making, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, he does exactly what he says. His cape's like dripping with the lighter fluid. He lights it with something, and really quickly, it's all up in flames. The North Dakota wind is howling, so the flames are like wrapping around his body because oxygen and fire are really good friends. And he's up there for what feels like way too long before he finally dives off into the water, extinguishing the flames, and you know what happens. He emerges completely unscathed. Pretty incredible, right? But the wow factor is not just the fact that this guy lit himself on fire, right? Because anybody can do that, especially if you lack like some basic intelligence and survival <laughs> skills. That's not the wow factor. The wow factor is what? That he was engulfed in flames and yet he was not burned up. And you see a bit of a parallel. They could have called it like the burning bush dive or something. And, you know, this is something that captivates our attention. It grabs our focus because it's not something that we see every day. It's pretty extraordinary. And you find it at a place like a fair because what? That's where you go to be amused and entertained. Now, what I find interesting about the story of Moses and his encounter with God in the burning bush is that the setting and circumstances are actually so opposite of this. Moses is not attending some action-packed event. He has no pamphlet that says, come see the burning bush act, 2 p.m., lot seven, it's gonna be killer. Nothing like that. In terms of encountering God, he's not on his way to worship at a religious center of his day. He's not on his way to offer a sacrifice. None of that. He is simply at work tending to his father-in-law's flock. 
And so we see Moses doing a very ordinary thing, but he's also doing it in a very ordinary place. Now catch this. When we first do a quick read over of the passage, we might assume that the setting is a likely place for this to happen because it says that Moses came to Horeb, right? The mountain of God. Well, the mountain of God, that seems like a pretty good place to find him. And then even a few verses later, it says God instructs Moses, right? Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. However, up until this point, it's actually likely that there has been nothing significant about this mountain. We have to remember that this story we read would have been written down much, much later after God's people had already experienced this location as the mountain of God or what we come to know as Mount Sinai. This is a place where for a time after they leave Egypt, uh, God's people worship him here at this mountain. This is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Some incredible things happen at this place, but at the time of Moses' encounter with the burning bush, none of it has actually occurred yet. Nothing has happened. And so the ground being holy, it's not so much a statement of its pre-existing condition, but rather it's the result of God's presence that comes and meets Moses there in the moment, not that he stumbled upon some kind of spiritual hotspot. It's also interesting to note that if you translate the word Horeb, it literally means wasteland. And so it's in this very ordinary, seemingly unlikely place the God encounters Moses in the burning bush. And God often shows up similarly to us today. And by that, I don't mean that when you go home, you need to worry about your fiddly fig or your ficus going up in flames and burning your house down. I just mean that God desires to reveal himself in our ordinary, everyday lives. In our example from the life of Moses, it's not a one-off. The Bible is actually rife with parallel examples. There's a man named Gideon. He's called by God while threshing grain. Samuel while serving in the tabernacle. David of giant slaying fame while he is out in the fields as a young shepherd boy. A guy named Elisha while out plowing. Many of Jesus' own disciples while they are fishing. Another while collecting taxes. The examples here are numerous. But back to our story with Moses, the burning bush itself can serve as a fruitful image for our faith. We can see the burning bush as this collision point between what is ordinary or commonplace, which in this case is the bush, and the extraordinary power and presence of God. And within this collision, we find two things, mystery and paradox. As Moses observes, the bush is burning, yet it is not consumed. And the same kind of mystery and paradox exists in other concepts of the Christian faith. For example, God exists as the Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Also take, for example, the virgin birth of Jesus. That one is a lot more self-explanatory for us. And even with that, the fact that when Jesus was born, he was born both fully God and fully man. Not half God, half man, some kind of demigod, but fully possessing both natures. This is the mystery of the incarnation. In Christian art, especially early iconography and medieval works, uh, the mystery of the incarnation was often captured by symbolically depicting Jesus surrounded by this kind of glorious football-looking shape called a uh, mandorla. It's Italian for almond, describing the shape. We're going to show you a quick example uh, where we see two of these mandorla shapes in stained glass from St. Peter's Cathedral in West 
Belfast so you can get an idea of what I am talking about. And you see the shape, but where it actually comes from is what we see as the overlap between two intersecting circles. And so for us more modernly, we would probably think of something like a Venn diagram where you have two circles and you're comparing two contrasting things and showing an area in the middle of commonality, right? And so in the case of Jesus, divinity and humanity intersect. Again, he's fully God and fully man. Uh, fun fact, this is also where we get the Jesus fish shape from. It's actually a mandorla. Rather than cutting it off at the two intersection points, you leave one with a little bit of a tail. And uh, it's actually a, a symbol that has a rich history in the Christian faith. In recent decades, it has made it onto a lot of car bumpers. And so maybe you didn't know you've had a mandorla like on your Mazda this whole time or something as you've been driving around. And we see this intersection with Jesus, divinity and humanity. In the case of the burning bush, an ordinary plant in the extraordinary presence of God. And we can all too easily in life fall into operating out of a kind of perceived dichotomy or separation between two things. On one hand, we have the things of this life. It's our earthly experience, the weekly grind, our nine to five. And on the other hand, there are the things of God, that which is heavenly or spiritual or related to faith. And we can compartmentalize things into these two distinct categories in our minds. For some of you, maybe the former is Monday through Saturday and the latter is Sunday. Maybe for you, it's not a stark division of your week, but it is, you know, 10 minutes of reading the Bible in the morning, which is awesome. It's maybe praying uh, before a meal, especially something like fair food, where you're like, God, please just somehow bless this food to my body, right? And in all of this, you still can maybe see a division between what we recognize as time with God and the rest of our day. And this can be a really challenging thing. We see maybe a short list of heavenly things and then a long one that we might be tempted to associate with a, a much warmer place. You know, things like paying the bills, dealing with a difficult client at work, a minor fender bender, which we had in the last couple of weeks, uh, your baby having a really major blowout. You know, we're talking all the way up the back. It's the cute outfit. It always is. Or maybe it's literally just your alarm clock going off in the morning or conversely not going off like you had expected it to and so then you're late and I would never wanna be an alarm clock. We hate them when they wake us up. We get mad at them when they don't wake us up. It's like, what can they do? They can't win. And this mental and functional division between heavenly and earthly, sacred and secular, extraordinary and ordinary, you can pick your language it can quickly become frustrating when our genuine desire is to follow Jesus and live in his way. Here's what I mean. We long to experience what? The power, the presence, the peace, the purposes of God in our lives. But the demands of life do not go away. The world keeps turning, the bills keep coming, and so on. We hear Paul's directive in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing and think, how in the world? Or more specifically, how in my world? I can't just ignore the things I have to do at my job. I can't not pay attention to the needs of my family or the schoolwork that I have to get done, the deadlines that need to get met, or just the fact that I like really have to go to the bathroom. And I think that we can all agree that God's peace in your heart shouldn't require pee in your pants, right? Like we can agree on that. But we read something like that, and so it begs the question, what gives? How do we do this? How do we 
bridge the gap. We should have regular times when we do withdraw from the noise, uh, the distraction, the busyness of life to pray, seek God, and simply abide with him. This is not only a good thing, it is a necessary thing for cultivating a deep spiritual life. At the same time, if our only interaction with God comes in the form of quiet time or a church service, we are missing out on what can be some of our most transformative experiences with God. And this problem comes when we maintain the separation between our two categories, the daily and the divine, or the ordinary and the extraordinary. We get exhausted jumping back and forth between the two, effectively splitting our identities. It makes me think of when you take a car and you, you know, shift back and forth between normal mode and sport mode. And we spend our days jumping between normal mode and spirit mode. And the solution is not jumping in and out and in and out. It's actually joining. It's bringing together. It's creating that space of overlap and integration. It's inviting God to reveal himself to us in the ordinary things of our day today. This is why Jesus taught not that we should pray, God, just take me to heaven so I can be with you already, but instead, thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and creating this space where heaven is pulled down, where it touches earth and we meet him there. With this thought, I love what Dallas Willard writes in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. First, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being, quote, right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. For those situations and moments are our life. When we feel like we have to escape life to experience God, we begin to perceive all kinds of things as hurdles. I love my family, who we're going to show you for a few moments here in a photo, and you can kind of ooh and ah. Uh, I love them so much. And yeah, there they are. So my wife, Kendra, uh, she's incredible, and she's a stay-at-home mom with our three-year-old son, Maverick, our not-quite-two-year-old, Millie. And uh, by the way, she is currently growing a third tiny human in her body right now that we're due to meet sometime early in December, uh, which we are so pumped about. So yeah, it kind of goes without saying that, that mom is just a shorter way of saying superhero, right? And yeah, she's pregnant, so she can get to wear tights all the time, maternity clothes, got lots of elastic, it's great. And, uh, but I, I love my family, and you know, she spends so much time at home with our kids. How much do you want to bet that her quiet time is going to get interrupted throughout the week? Like, you can guarantee it because kids don't have boundaries. They don't care if you're like, you know, way deep into Leviticus and then they're just like, hey, can I have a snack? Or they crawl up on your lap and they disrupt everything, right? They don't have boundaries. For myself, I mean, would I, would I just love it if on a Saturday morning, right, I could sleep in, 
awake naturally to the, to the rhythm of my sleep cycle in my body, just kind of waking up and mosey my way out of the bedroom, warm cup of coffee in one hand, my Bible in the other, make my way out onto the deck. You know, there's birds chirping, the sound filling the air, it's beautiful. And I just sit down and relax in the peace and receive from God's word for like an hour. I would love that. Do I get that as a parent with young kids? Absolutely not. It's, it's not happening. That would be really nice. And kids will be kids, but it's up to me as a parent to decide if they're going to become hurdles or a highway to God's presence and voice and work in my life. That's up to my perception because as much as they may take away the opportunity for my kind of idealistic fantasy Saturday morning of quiet time, I don't know that there's been anything in my life that has spoken more to me about God's heart as my heavenly father or my identity as his beloved child in Christ. I don't know that there's been anything more refining for my character or more catalytic for developing selflessness and patience in my life. If you're a parent, you know that you're gonna grow in patience over the years. And this question of hurdles or highways, it could be about family for you, but it can be really anything. Your career can devolve into workaholism or it can become worship, working as unto the Lord. Caring for your home can just be boring chores or you can see it as an act of stewardship. And here's the good news. God will meet you just as happily in the laundry room as he will in your prayer closet. Your commute to work can become a place where you actually commune with God. I mean, come on, who out there knows that when you're driving, it's the, it's the best place to worship God in song because nobody can hear you. You can sing as loud as you want, which is really good news if you have a voice like mine. While you're at it, you can pray for the person who just cut you off in traffic because, you know, they really need it, uh, especially if they've got that Jesus fish on the bumper, you know, like... If, I'm just going to, disclaimer, if you're going to drive poorly, please do not make Jesus guilty by association. We do not need that, you know. We need to share the love of Christ and not uh, poor driving skills. I, I was even laughing. I thought of a, a friend of mine who said, you know, I think that God really just speaks to me uh, in the shower. And I think, yeah, who else hears the voice of God in the shower? It's like the first thing when you wake up. It's very like a Garden of Eden, no clothes, and God can just speak. Um, and so I think that's a great place that God can meet you in the shower. Or I love the fact that in a day of busy work that on a lunch break, a short walk outside can become a space of wonder taking in the beauty of the creator's handiwork. That God can meet us anywhere if we'll make it a highway and not a hurdle to his presence. I believe that when we don't seek to escape, but rather become actually more present to the different aspects of our day-to-day -day lives, God can turn almost any ordinary commonplace thing into a burning bush, a spot where we encounter and hear his voice, where we suddenly find ourselves standing on holy ground in this kind of mysterious overlap where heaven and earth collide. And again, this happens through invitation and awareness. It's asking God to speak to us throughout our days, even in the mundane moments, and then remaining attentive. And our attention is key. Notice how Moses thought, I will go over, or some translations say, I will turn aside to see this. We must be willing to turn our attention, curiously asking, what might God be up to right now? 
One really great practice to build our kind of spiritual muscle in this area, because this may be difficult for you as it is for many of us, is something called the prayer of examine, just a quick application. I'm not going to get deep into the idea of it, but essentially it's this prayer movement for the end of your day to literally examine the day that you've lived. And one of the movements in it is to ask God to reveal how were you present to me in my day? How were you speaking? And recognize that. And what's great about this practice is that as we get better at identifying God's presence and his voice in the past, the more readily that we will be able to identify them in the present moment and then respond to them. And what will begin to happen when we do this We'll experience transformation within ourselves, definitely, but also calling into purpose that goes beyond ourselves. Anytime God is working in our lives, it is both for us, but also for the sake of others. Time and time again, the narrative of God's encounters with people does not take the form of, I really just want to bless your socks off and make you like uber happy, and God will bless us, and he will bring joy to us. But more often, the narrative is, I want to make you a blessing to others. And why? Because in refreshing others, you yourself will be refreshed. Because it's better to give than it is to receive. Because the primary narrative of the Christian faith is not God in my story, but me in God's story. That's what it's always about. And as God is writing his story, he comes to Moses in the burning bush and he says, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Wow. Talk about great purpose. Talk about an incredible calling. And how does Moses respond in this moment? Is it excitement? Is it anticipation at what God's going to do? God chose me to be a part of this. Well, it's a little bit different from that. We're going to pick it up again in Exodus 3, now verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. 13, Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites, you know, hypothetically, I'm not committing to anything, but just suppose that I was to go to them, and, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, paraphrasing a bit for the sake of time, he goes on to reiterate, I am the God of your fathers before you. I'll bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning one of abundance. I will stretch out my hand against the Egyptians. This is foretelling of the plagues that will happen. And you will plunder them as you go, not leaving empty-handed. Now back again in Exodus 4.1, after this, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Again, paraphrasing, God instructs Moses here, hey, here are two signs, two miraculous signs that I'm going to give you to perform so that these people, they will believe that it is I who sent you. But also, hey, if they don't believe you, even after that, here's a third sign to boot. And then from there, finally wrapping up in Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I find that a really funny way of translating Moses, essentially saying, I don't talk so good. It's like, I've never been eloquent. 
He's not then. He said, I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. See, Moses responds with all of his faults, his insecurities, his inadequacies, all of the reasons that he thinks God should really choose someone else to do this. And notice what God does not respond with here. Well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Moses, come on, you're a good guy. Don't be bashful. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen? I'm sure you can be persuasive, Moses. I've never been eloquent in speech. Come on, do a few warm-ups in the bathroom, a how-now brown cow or two. You'll be ready to go. You got this, Moses. You can do it. God's response actually has very little to do with Moses. In the middle of Moses pointing out all of the things that are wrong with him, he's saying, this is who I am. God responds and says, I am who I am meaning I am unchanging, meaning I will be with you. I'm faithful from generation to generation. I'm a God of abundance, of power, of provision. I can work miracles that I can perform anything I want. And guess what? If I can take uh, the dust of the earth, fashion it into a man, put a a palace of pearly whites on his face and call it a mouth, I can teach him how to use the thing, right? I mean, come on, Moses, I'm talking to you out of a bush. This thing doesn't even have a mouth. It's like, Moses, I can do this. Look at who I am and stop getting so fixated and focused on who you are, the ways that you failed, the ways that you feel like you've got it wrong, all the reasons that you think that you're disqualified, guess what? It doesn't matter because nobody is going to earn their way there. It's all about Moses, who I am. And what's true for Moses is true for us, that God desires to use us despite our faults and our failings. Is God good enough to do it? Yes. Are we good enough to earn it? Absolutely not. Will we surrender to experience it? That is what we each must decide for ourselves. Because if we recognize that God's role is of primary importance and our role is of secondary importance, that doesn't make our part unimportant because God's not going to force or coerce us into anything, he invites and we must respond with surrender. As Robert Weber puts it in his book, The Divine Embrace, nevertheless, union with God does have to do with self, not as in the narcissistic self, but as the challenge to be the new self, recreated to be all that God intends us to be in our restored nature and new state of being. For when God lives in us, in we and him, we lose ourselves through a surrender of ourselves to the purposes of God. We become transformed selves. And so as I wrap up today and as we respond, if you're looking for God, if you're seeking purpose in life, you don't have to look far. Embrace the presence of God in your everyday life. Ask that he would speak to you. Listen for his voice. Lean in and pay attention because he'll meet you there in that place. And if you're looking in the mirror 
and you're caught up with all the things that are wrong with you, all that you wish was different, all of the reasons that you would think you would be disqualified from God using you, turn your eyes to Jesus, lay everything down at his feet because the transformed self does not come through our own solving, it comes through our full surrender. And here's what I love about all of this, that we surrender, that God's Holy Spirit works in and through us and our surrender is not a one-time decision, but a daily act, a daily discipline. So if you've been following Jesus for decades, if you've had 10,000 days of surrender, guess what? Today is a day to surrender again. And if you've never taken one step with Jesus, if he's totally new to you, but you long for the journey, that you long for the life to the full that only he can provide for God's plans and purposes in your life, despite all of your faults and failings. Today is the perfect first day to surrender to Jesus who is unfailing and he'll meet you right where you're at. So will you stand with me today as we close? I want to pray with you and we're going to worship God with our voices one more time, but I wanna pray into what you may be feeling, what God may be prompting in your heart right now. And so Lord, we come to you and God, we thank you. Thank you that you are the God who speaks existence into nothingness. God, that you've created everything, the moon, the stars, the earth that we walk on, that you've crafted each and every one of us as your handiwork. God, that in every way you are extraordinary. And yet, despite all of that, that you choose to meet ordinary people in ordinary places. God, that when we had no way to you, that you made a path, that Jesus, you came to us, that you became one of us, that you walked a mile in our shoes and you gave your very life so that we could experience new life. And so God, for anyone who is struggling to experience your voice, to find what you're speaking, to know your presence. I pray that you would reveal yourself as we go from this place. Would we meet you not only in a Sunday church service, but as we go home, as we sleep at night, as we wake in the morning and we go about our days, would you reveal yourself, God, taking ordinary things and meeting us there with your extraordinary presence. God, we believe that you can do it. And for anyone who is feeling the, the weight of guilt or shame for what they've done, the life they've lived, or who they feel they are right now in this moment, God, would you meet them there? God, that regardless of if we feel like we're standing in a promised land or a wasteland, that you are a God who is faithful. God, that you are meeting us right now. And so would you encounter us? Would you help us to walk with you? Would you help us to draw near to you? Would you make us more like you, Jesus? Because you're able. Lord, we love you. We praise you that you meet us wherever we're at, no matter the season, no matter what it looks like. God, that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.